Through tragedy and sadness, Queen Elizabeth II was a model of constancy. At the age of 96, this beautiful and brave woman passed away recently. Her death will have important repercussions for the monarchy and the future of the United Kingdom. So that's why today in this episode, we are going to talk about the legacy of this beautiful and brave and courageous woman. And meanwhile, what is the future for the country? And how about this international relationship under Prince Charles? Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Professor Nicoletta Golacci. Professor Golacci is Associate Professor for the History Department at the University of New Hampshire. Her research interests include European cultural history, modern Britain, and women's history. Professor Golacci, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much. You're welcome. The pleasure is all mine. Again, Professor, as we mentioned before, and also at the intro, I think the world was in shock that when we received the news that Queen Elizabeth II and unexpectedly passed away, and despite the fact that we know that recently her health declined. So, I, and then when the world is mourning for this icon, can you help us to understand about the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II? And we know that if you uh, we study history, this woman has actually gone through a lot in her life, and not only as the leader, but also as a woman. Can you help us to understand her background and her international, or even let's start with domestic influence in, at the beginning? Definitely, Will. Well, I think we were all very shocked because just two days before she died, we had all seen her um, pictures of her uh, uh, introducing herself to the new prime minister, Liz uh, Truss. And she seemed vibrant and she smiled and she was fulfilling her constitutional duties right up to the end. So I think in that way, it, it came as a great shock. We didn't expect that two days later she would die. Um, and her legacy has been absolutely tremendous. And I think that is in part because of her 70 year reign. Mm. Queen Elizabeth became queen when she was sort of on a second honeymoon with Philip in Kenya, mm. um, which was then a colony of the British Empire. They were in a game reserve, and she was a beautiful young woman at the time. And a journalist at the time said she went up into the tree where she was staying. They had beautiful cabins and trees so that they could see the game. She went up a princess and she came down a queen. Mm. And I think the death of her father was a shock to her. And um, the uh, nation embraced her at the time. Here she was. She was young. She was um, swore her devotion to her commonwealth, to her country, and in some ways, because of her youth and the unexpected nature of her becoming queen in two ways. Mm. First, because her father died young, mm. and secondly, because of the traumatic abdication of her uncle that put her in line to the throne, I think the nation embraced her. Mm. And as the nation embraced her, she herself also 
embraced the larger commonwealth. Mm. In the period after World War II, the British Empire declined tremendously as first the countries of the Indian subcontinent gained their independence, and then other colonies desired their independence as well. And Elizabeth was pivotal mm. in trying to change um, uh, Great Britain from an empire based on rulers and subject people to a commonwealth that would be family of nations. Mm. And to the very end, she really clung to this idea and was perhaps the most loyal proponent of the idea of the commonwealth of any British monarch from the time of its, its inception since. Mm. You know, Professor, it's interesting that we hear what you just said regarding her legacy and how she received this position. You know, we always say, again, you're uh, uh, an expert on history. We always say that people are the product of the environment. So in other words, that when we look at this, this person's characters and personality and the spirit of tenacity or in the spirit of leadership, on one hand, Within her family, that Elizabeth father set examples and being a role model to her. But on the other hand, again, Professor, I think this is something that we are all interested and in, you can definitely help us to understand. She was such a beautiful young woman. And the journey for her, again, as you mentioned, ring over 70 years. How should we understand the spirit of tenacity and the spirit of persistence. I'm sure that it's not easy for her to make all the decisions. It's not easy for her to, to delegate all the political or those social, economic, important responsibilities. How did she manage all of that? Because again, as you mentioned before, when we look at her pictures today, when we look at her before her passed away, she will always have this beautiful smile, this positive attitude, this sense of gratefulness. Where did it all come from? Well, I think it's important to remember that Britain had a legacy of powerful queens. Her uh, reign is often referred to as the second Elizabethan age. Mm. Elizabeth I is considered one of the great monarchs of British history. She successfully defended Britain against invasion of the Spanish Armada, for example. Mm. And then um, Queen Victoria, her, uh, you know, uh, great grandmother, I think, um, uh, uh, great great grandmother, I never get them quite right. But Queen Victoria had also had a legendarily long reign and was looked upon in some ways as the mother of her people. So Elizabeth came to queenship unapologetically in an, uh, a country, some of whose greatest monarchs had been queens. She herself, in terms of her character, apparently Churchill met her as a, a young girl and mm. said that her authoritativeness was extraordinary mm. and her self-confidence. And um, that, I think, uh, came from growing up in an aristocratic family. She was a woman of tremendous faith. Mm. So she was able to assume the role of the leader of the Anglican Church in a way that was sincere. And um, I think she also came to power at a very 
very difficult time for Britain because Britain went from being a great empire to a reduced nation, mm -hmm. very much impoverished after the Second World War. She assumed the throne in 1952. Well, Her coronation was in 53. Mm -hmm. And England was still under rationing. They were rationing food. They were rationing clothing. When um, And um, she nevertheless projected an air of optimism at this time and reassurance to people that things would be all right. Mm -hmm. So she was able to emotionally um, uh, uh, show that regal bearing, the majesty of queenship, but at the same time offer warmth and humanity and, as you said, beauty. And actually, I want to pause on the aspect of beauty, mm. because I think one of the things that is um, uh, alluring about the Queen and also about the new Princess of Wales, we saw it with Princess Diana, mm. is that there's something emotionally stirring to people, particularly in a very visually oriented media age, about a beautiful Queen. Right. And the Queen can wear clothing and not look silly. Right. Mm. The queen looks beautiful in a tight tiara, whereas the king looks a bit silly in the imperial crown. Mm. So there is something about being able to be starstruck by the monarch mm. that helps um, enhance the larger sense of majesty. So I think you're really quite correct in identifying her beauty as one of the qualities that helped her be the popular monarch she was. Mm. You know, Professor, at the beginning of my journalistic career, I had a mentor. And then initially, when I jump into the job, I will never forget until this day I, the, what the mentor said to me. And he said, when we tap into any career, and the question is not what we are getting here. The question is what we are becoming. And I think this is the question that really resonates with Queen Elizabeth II, the same thing. So help us understand, when she tapped into the position, what do you think that she wanted to accomplish, not just as the leader that for the country? So in other words, internally, internally and also externally, what do you think that she was trying to accomplish? Is it more political ambition? Is it more economic uh, 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 equality or anything to do with her family's legacy or she has something else in mind, not only for this position, but also for the entire country? Of course, that again, we're in the year of 2022. As we mentioned before, she's not just a leader for the United Kingdom, but she has become a renowned, world-accepted, a beautiful icon. So again, what was she trying to accomplish when she was given to this position? And how do you think she managed her ambition, goal, and drive? Well, I, that's a wonderful question, Will. And I think that she gave us a hint um, in 19, uh, 1947, when she was 21 years old, and on the occasion of turning 21, she was on a royal a tour, a tour of South Africa. And she gave a radio broadcast that was a broadcast out to the entire Commonwealth and also back to Great Britain, where she said, and this has been repeated often since in her death, that whether her life was long or short, she was going to devote it to the service of the empire. 
And I think that revealed, here's a 21-year-old girl. She would be married that year. But she was willing, even at that young age, to dedicate herself and to swear that she would be queen, not just queen of England, not just queen of Britain, not just queen of the United Kingdom, mm. but she would be the queen for this entire Commonwealth of Nations. And um, so she understood the august power of this um, this uh, job symbolically, that she would rise above party, mm. she would rise above nation, and she would devote herself to being that unifying force. Mm. And I think it's very interesting, her education. We often hear, oh, well, she had no formal education. Well, in fact, the headmaster of Eton um, tutored her extensively on the constitutional role of the British monarch. Mm. She was good at languages. She knew fluent French. Um, she studied geography. And through her religious background, she was thoroughly inversed in the tenets of um, the Church of England. So, in fact, she was quite well educated. And in this way, she understood the role of a constitutional monarch quite profoundly and realized that her symbolic value would be her greatest gift to the nation and the commonwealth. And she showed as early as age 21 that she was willing to take this on. It's interesting to note that I think in 1947, she was also the year she was married. And um, uh, King uh, Prince Philip was the head of the family. But when she was crowned queen in 1953, he kneeled before her and swore allegiance to her uh, uh, as his monarch, mm -hmm. very much like a knight would have sworn to his lady, the, the queen. So they had an extraordinary marriage. And even then it was clear to both of them that she would need to assume this very powerful and august role. Mm. Professor Gulachi, I know you briefly touch on another significant part of Queen Elizabeth II, which is her faith. We know that across the continent, that leaders around the world very much open about their devotion, their dedications for all different type of religious affiliations. But Queen Elizabeth, she had her faith as a Christian. Can you help us understand how did she pick up her faith as a Christian and how significant for everyone today to understand that her religious belief or even as her personal dedication to this Christian faith? Well, I think that um, given that the monarch is actually the head of the Church of England, it was very important that she would have an uncomplicated um, uh, uh, faith. She was not acting apart sometimes with, with these political leaders. We assume they're just pretending right. to be as religious as they are. With her, I think the faith was authentic. Mm. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting about monarchy itself is people ask, and we, we've heard um, anti-monarchists um, say, you know, why do we still have kings and queens? The earliest forms of kingship were justified as being um, anointed by God. 
And so on some level, she saw her role as queen being, in fact, a religious duty. Mm. And so I think that was helpful to her. And it also helped her through the many difficult times that they had. The loss, you know, the the terror of being bombed during the Second World War, Mm. the loss of the empire, which was um, a profoundly difficult thing for people in Britain, even though it was an important liberationist moment for those um, colonial subjects who are gaining their independence. Um, Through the divorce of her children, which she, of course, disapproved of, um, uh, but the the, the burning, when the the, the fire at Windsor Castle, in each of these things, to be able to look at a higher power than herself and feel internally that she was anointed by God to show leadership in this moment and that she would do so surely gave her strength. An important thing to remember, though, was that as Queen of the Commonwealth, she was also very adamant about respecting the different faiths Mm. of people within the Commonwealth. So she was a far more multicultural, eclectic, and religiously open monarch than one might have expected from someone her generation. Uh, And I think in that way, that was also appealing to people, um, since she was so open and embracing to all faiths. Hmm. You know what, Professor, it's not easy, and I can testify this myself, on one hand, that we always say, faith grows in the midst of the difficulties, where faith tend to show us that what we're actually made of when we are facing hardships and obstacles. But on the other hand, I can't even imagine, uh, again, as a girl, that shoulders such major responsibilities and how much tremendously burden that she was carried as the leader, again, as you mentioned before, in this World War II, you know, in this crucial period. Now, let's move on to the successor, I guess that everyone knows is Prince Charles. Again, Professor, at this moment, help us to understand this legacy of Queen Elizabeth II is not going to be erased, period. The whole world is going to continue to celebrate what this woman has done for the world. But meanwhile, this is going to be a very difficult job to take on for Prince Charles, how should we evaluate the next step for the country? And what does that even mean, not only for the people in the United Kingdom, but also for the people around the world? Go ahead, Professor. Well, I think, uh, again, it's a wonderful question, and it's we're all, what we're all waiting to see. Now, I think for most of Charles's life, he has been the object of some bad press. People thought, thought that he was faddish um, early on in his embrace of the environment, which now looks visionary rather than, than faddish. Um, but, and uh, there was much criticism about him over the divorce from Diana, the affair with Camilla, and he never seemed to be able to do anything right. But in the last few years, he has been taking on increasing numbers of constitutional duties, opening parliament with the queen, standing at her side, in part as she has grown more unsteady, he's grown more sure of himself. But I think, again, it is important to remember the mystical power of kingship. The moment the last breath left her body, he became king. Mm. And almost magically, 
when he came to Buckingham Palace and walked out among his people, instead of ridiculing or being uninterested, they, they yelled, God save the king. Mm. That somehow the mystique and the majesty had in fact transferred um, towards his ability to at least um, project that heir and his subjects, at least the royalist, um, the monarchists in the crowd, mm. were embracing him. He gave a very good speech as his first speech as a king, talking about his mother's legacy mm. and those aspects of that legacy he would try to maintain. He struck the right balance between grief and optimism, and I think it was a well-received um, speech. Mm. So I think he is going to try and maintain some of the traditions, but yet we know, that because he has said so, that he is going to be presiding over a, quote, slimmed-down monarchy. Mm. He says that he and Camilla will live in the flat over the shop. And this is a joke because um, Buckingham Palace is, quote, the shop. Mm. And they're going to open it up to the public and just have a small quarters for themselves. Fewer members of the royal family are going to get um, treated with the same um, tax benefits and, and patronage as the uh, expanded royal family under the queen. I think the question remains whether a reduction in this majesty is exactly what the people want. Mm. The monarchy itself in Britain, because you did mention economics, is a multi-billion dollar business. Mm. People go to Britain from all over the world because they want to see the changing of the guard. That's they right. Want to, they, they attend jubilee. Americans, this revolutionary country that broke away from Britain, thousands of Americans went to, be, to see the jubilee. And they wear paper crowns, and they wear masks, and they buy things, and all the rest of it, um, so that the monarchy itself is a commodity mm. also. So there's the mystical kingship, there's the constitutional role, and there is this kind of economic, um, popular culture role of the monarchy. And I wonder whether Charles will be able to maintain that. He imagines that the British public want to spend less on the monarchy and he's going to see that they do. Mm. But will that satisfy the monarchists, the royalists who like the pageantry? And will any monarchy perhaps be too much for the Republicans, mm. the people who would like to get rid of the monarchy and just have a republic? Mm. So it'll be very interesting to see if he is able to maintain that balance to keep the royalists satisfied and to keep the anti-monarchists at bay. Hmm. Professor Gulachi, I know you're very busy. Now stay with me. I have two more questions before letting you go. Now, I want to bring our topic back to modernity today of the Great Britain. As you mentioned before, this new prime minister was elected recently. And again, given this fact, when we look at the round, uh, around the world today, Every single country pretty much is standing at the crossroads. But again, because of the pandemic, we faced uncertainty. But meanwhile, we also welcomed challenges. So I want you to help us to understand this relationship, particularly between Prince Charles and also this upcoming prime minister or this current new prime minister, Liz. How do you think that these two are going to work closely? Or I guess the better question is, how do you think that the people in Britain today is going to restore their faith and the trust 
under this new prime minister. And given the fact that Boris Johnson was forced to resign because of multiple uh, uh, political or economic scandals, how do you think that this leadership change in the midst of Queen Elizabeth II passed away is going to put the country back on track? Um. I think that Britain is is facing a very difficult time, and I think that Prince Charles and Liz Truss are going to do everything they can to try to stick things back together. Um, but think of the things that that they're facing. First, as you mentioned, there was the pandemic, the lockdowns, the suffering, and and the Queen herself was a wonderfully calming voice, giving radio addresses, assuring people that we will meet again. Um, and that was a wonderful allusion, both to meeting again after lockdown mm. and then to meeting again in the afterlife for those who had died. Mm. And, and um, she was a brilliant queen during this terrible time. Now, um, Britain has emerged from that moment, but is in a state of, of real chaotic dis disarray. Energy prices, particularly the price of gas, which Britons use to heat their homes, is up going to be anticipated to rise up 80% in part because obviously of the war in Ukraine, mm. where uh, it is with so much of the gas coming to Europe through um, Russia and through those areas and the, a major shortage that is likely to be on hand. So there is um, there are threatened strikes taking place, which actually were suspended in honor of the Queen's mm. passing, but will resume again afterwards. Um, the uh, Liz Truss is on tenuous ground herself. Boris Johnson fell from grace because of his partying. Mm. There was a leadership struggle, which she won. But this may be, we don't know. Liz Truss herself thinks she's going to be the second Margaret Thatcher. Will she be the second Margaret Thatcher or will she be the second Theresa May? We don't know yet. So I think within all this moment of crisis and instability, King Charles III is going to need to recognize that the way his mother over the last 70 years stabilized things under similarly difficult circumstances mm -hmm. was to stand above the fray and to offer stability and reassurance. Mm. So we'll hope he can do that. My hope, my uh, my prediction, and the historians, we're better at looking at the past than the That's future, right. so I may be jolly wrong. My prediction is uh, King Charles III will last much longer than Liz Truss, mm. but we'll see. Mm. Um, uh, but Britain is likely to go through a great deal more turmoil. And remember that one thing Charles can't avoid is his own family is going through turmoil. That's right. So he is going to have to also try and or some kind of rapprochement with um, Prince Harry and Meghan, who are um, hurling all sorts of um, ill will and bad messages in their public um, pronunciations about the monarchy, that it's racist, that it's uncaring, that it's callous. And so Charles is in the difficult position of having to navigate the situation where he shows love for his son and daughter-in-law, which he articulated in his first speech to the nation. But at the same time, um, is very keenly aware of how much damage can be done, both in Britain, which is now a multicultural society, and the Commonwealth, where there's already a certain amount of, particularly in places like Jamaica, why do we have kings mm. and queens? These um, accusations of racism um, and all of the 
very true um, uh, objections to empire and the way the um, end of empire was a brutal process. So how does Charles um, deal with these accusations at the same time project love and at the same time show enough reassurance that he is able to be the beacon his mother was both for his nation and his commonwealth? Well, of course, that professor, you all agree with me that one of the important jobs, not only for women, for men, but for everyone, is to carefully study the history, not just about a person, but actually about the entire world. And so that we are able to understand so much how far the world has come and where the world is is going well ladies and gentlemen i am so honored to speak to professor nicoletta golacci and again professor golacci is associate professor of the history department at the university of new hampshire her research includes european cultural history modern britain and the women's history professor thank you so much for taking your time to join the show it's been a pleasure of speaking to you regarding queen elizabeth ii and the entire country and meanwhile i'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to discuss more relevant topics thank you professor thank you very much will i enjoyed this greatly and i would love to speak to your um, fans again